Welcome to Funding the Future, a special edition of Category Visionaries, where instead of interviewing founders, we interview the VCs and angel investors that back them with capital, resources, and advice. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Kyle Harrison, general partner at Contrary. Kyle, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, no problem. So to kick things off, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and really just a bit more about your background? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Kyle Harrison, one of the general partners at Contrary. So to give the quick background on me, so I started as a founder in the early days. You know, didn't even know to call it a startup. was just, I was a videographer. I was doing jobs. I had too many jobs. So I started farming it out to other creatives. And before I knew it, I was running a creator marketplace before that was cool. So I ran that company for about four years, sold it, and was just really excited. The thing I loved most about my company was being able to be this resource for talented, passionate, creative people. And that introduced me into venture. And so I kind of went through this, what I joke is my Goldilocks experience of spending a few years at some very, very different firms, learned a ton. So I was at TCV and Co2 before uh, prior to Contrary, I was a partner at Index for a couple of years and then had been at Contrary for about a year leading our sort of later stage efforts. So I invest anywhere from Series A and beyond, but Contrary will invest anywhere from pre-seed to, to later stages. And something I didn't mention in the intro there is you're a very active writer. And I, I've read a lot of your essays and I'm, I'm a huge fan of your work. Where did that writing come from? What's the backstory there? Have you always been a writer or is that something you developed later on in life? Yeah, you know, it's funny. So I used to write a lot. Like when I was running my company, I would write mostly to help me think through things. And then just by happenstance, a lot of the firms that I've worked at have been crossover firms. So both TCV, Co2, they're very active in the public markets. And as a function of that, they have very, they have very scary compliance departments. And so I stopped, I stopped writing. I stopped really engaging in social because I was always just too afraid I was going to accidentally say something that we weren't allowed to say. And so it kind of took a hiatus for a long time. And then while I was at Index, I sort of got this itch where, you know, Index, Kotsu, they're great firms, but they're very established firms and they've been around for, you know, 20 plus years. I was sort of a piece of a much bigger machine. And the thing that I was missing was the entrepreneurial feeling of putting my fingerprints on something. And so while I was in Index, I started to think about, all right, I really love investing, but I also want to feel like I'm building something unique. What would be the ultimate sort of combo? And the idea was, what if I join a venture fund that's younger and is doing something very differently? And so I originally, it just started almost as like my job search to some extent where I was like, well, what are the things going on in venture and what would I want to do and what would I want in a firm that I was going to join that would be different for the next 20 years rather than sort of purpose built for the last 20 years. And as I started to do that exploration of how I thought about venture, that's a lot of where my writing came from. So one of my first big pieces that popped was, is called the unbundling of venture capital, where I talked a lot about the rising importance of the individual brand of each investor and how firms have sort of been diluted and all these different things. Those were aspects of me figuring out where I wanted to go to work. It just so happened that as I did this exploration, I not only got a bunch of great content for <laughs> from my writing, I also managed to convince myself that Contrary was the perfect fit for all the things that I was looking for. Wow, super interesting. And one thing we always ask on the show when we're interviewing founders is we ask them about QuickBooks. And I always you know, give a shout out to Ryan Holiday. I stole that from him. And as I was looking through your website, I saw a reference to QuickBooks. And sure enough, you linked Ryan Holiday there as well. So I'm going to put you on the spot here, probably the hardest question of the interview. If you could choose one book or if you have to choose one QuickBook, what would that book be? 
Yeah, it's such a hard question. I've got three kids and it's like choosing a kid. It's just so impossible. It's actually kind of funny. It probably in some corners of the internet, this would be like a cop out obvious answer. And in other corners, it's maybe a little bit more interesting. (laughs) But if I think about the books that like get me thinking most aggressively, as well as expose me to such a broad library of ideas, probably the one book that I, I keep coming back to year after year is called Poor Charlie's Almanac, which again, if you're in the sort of like, you know, value investor, like equities corner of, of FinTwit on Twitter, that's like a, you know, roll your eyes kind of answer. So everybody's just loves those kinds of books. But Poor Charlie's Almanac is one of my very favorite books because it's basically just a collection of Charlie Munger's, you know, best speeches and thoughts and mental models and frameworks. And the thing that I love most about it is just, it's such variety and it's so addressable. Like, and I love the concept that one of the best investors in the world, he very rarely talks about investing and almost always talks about psychology. So that got me so deeply thinking about my own personal decision-making, which also factors into a lot of my own writing. And now there's this really cool... So for the this past annual meeting for Berkshire Hathaway, Stripe Press produced this new edition of Poor Charlie's Almanac, and it's got a bunch of video interviews and graphics, and you can find it online, and it's just awesome. So I've, I've been digging into that for the last few months. Were you at the conference this year? I wasn't. Unfortunately, I couldn't make it this year, but I've been a few times before, and it's always it always feels like a very weirdly capitalist spiritual experience. Yeah, I just went for the first time this year, and it was a it was a lot of fun. It was very different from like a normal conference that you'd go to. Yeah, I, I do a lot of work in like cybersecurity, so I'm used to like Black Hat or RSA or these types of events, and you're just walking around the showroom there. There's there's no like cool swag being like thrown out and, and given away. You're buying everything, and it's a a very dry event, but also learned a lot. And it was just very like magical for lack of a better way to describe it to see those guys on stage that yeah i've seen my entire life it was just so cool to see them live yeah exactly what about podcasts are there any specific podcasts that you really enjoy listening to uh, apart from category visionaries of course (laughs) of course i have a ton of respect for the guys that acquired so i met david rosenthal quite a while ago when he was he was still at madrona in seattle i was working at amazon in seattle And so met him briefly there, really like I was, you know, this is the hipster in me, but I was probably one of the first like hundred people to listen to that podcast when it very first came out because it kind of made the rounds first in the sort of Seattle tech crowd and then made its way elsewhere. But I have a huge amount of respect for what those guys do. And we can talk a little bit about this, but over the last year, I've launched Contrary Research where as part of Contrary, where we've produced almost 200 memos on different private tech companies and sort of giving the overview of how to understand them and their market. And research is really difficult to get right. Like it's really easy to get wrong, but it's super difficult to get right. And the guys that acquired just crush it. Like every episode is just a magnum opus of sort of the overview of the topic that they're covering. I just got turned on to them about three months ago and I just geek out over it. I do a lot of running. So that's all I've listened to ever since I first heard it. That's all I listen to now when I run, when I walk the dog. There's just so much content. I think they're like 200 something episodes in and each episode is three hours. So it's going to take me probably a year or more to get all the way caught up. But that's right. With that podcast, it's so good. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about research. So what does that look like just behind the scenes? Maybe if you want to talk about a recent research project, we can start there. Yeah, totally. So the way that Contrary works fundamentally is that we have this core ethos of if we can identify the sharpest people in the world as early as possible in their career, 
and then build products for them that keep us relevant in their lives throughout their whole career, we have this unfair advantage in investing in the next generation of great companies. And so where that started was years ago, we'd go out and we'd find the best, you know, just the sharpest young people we can find in undergrad, grad school, PhDs, research institutes, whatever. Then we expanded to top companies, finding the best engineers and product folks and what have you. And we've now built this kind of core community of about 500 folks and we stay really close to them. And we're constantly asking ourselves, as you have someone who, you know, really sharp person in tech progresses through their career, what are the experiences they have and how could we be relevant even years before they start a company? And so that looks like, you know, when they get out of school, it's helping them find their first job. When they want to, you know, level up in their career, it's helping them with that. When they want to go work for a startup, it's helping them understand which startups that are interesting to join. Once they do want to start a company, it's helping them find a co-founder, giving them resources, you know, whatever it might be. So we're constantly trying to think about these product skews at different points in their life. And one of the things that came up a ton was this idea that, again, the people in our community, we've kept a very high bar. So they're very sharp. They don't necessarily need our help getting jobs. A lot of times it's just that they appreciate having a sort of trusted sounding board as they're evaluating the opportunities that are out there and what's going to be best for their career. And so the way that we kind of approach this is we'd have people come to us and they'd say, hey, I have this these job offers to these two or three private tech companies. They're in very different industries. I like the people, but what's the investor's perspective on these companies? Is the valuation too high? Is the competitive landscape too complicated? And so we would end up doing this ad hoc and we realized, let's just productize this and share it with the entire community. And then rather than keeping it under lock and key for a select group of folks, we realized that, hey, we can only go so deep on so many companies. Let's open source it. Let's get it out to the world and let people tell us where we're wrong. And so now we have a pretty robust editorial process internally where we put out about 20 memos on different tech companies per month, and then about one deep dive per month into a category. And so we've done everything from Hugging Face to Stripe to OpenAI to Canva to a bunch of different companies. And then we've done deep dives into things like designer software more broadly, talking about Figma and Canva. We've gone into cloud security. So most recently, we produced a deep dive, a colleague of mine, Megan Cow, and then the CEO of a company called Veretto put together this deep dive on the sort of, we called it the new frontier in finance. Basically, this idea of AI is is impacting every industry. Finance is literally just a universe of this structured and unstructured data. What are the implications of AI in finance? And so they went super deep in the category everywhere from financial planning to reporting and bookkeeping and things like that. And so that deep dive was informed by having done several memos on different private companies. So it's just been an awesome way to get to talk about a bunch of different interesting things. And when you're doing your research on these private companies like this, do you ever take a negative stance against them? So if you're doing your research and you uncover something negative, is that the slant ever? Is it you know almost like how some of the short sellers publish research? Is it ever like that? Or is it always more in a positive light or a, a neutral light? Yeah. So we don't take a stance on the companies per se, right? We don't have a buy, sell, hold rating. However, we kind of try and take this approach of we are constantly paying attention to what people are interested in. For example, we have a bunch of company profiles on our sites that don't have coverage. And we pay attention to, hey, who's clicking onto their page and wanting to see a memo? And when we see high volume, we say, all right, let's write a memo about this or that company. So we kind of try and have this fairly robust data engine that tells us what are the companies that people are interested in. And then we use that to inform the companies that we cover. But a lot of times as we're doing that research, we come across things that are negative, right? Whether it's negative press or lawsuits or founder breakups or whatever it might be. And the approach that we've taken is just to be very deliberate and pragmatic where it's like, hey, we're just summarizing what's out there. Like my hypothesis is that for any VC, 50 to 60% of the diligence that you could do on a company, you could do outside in. 
And so this is effectively just that diligence. And we specifically have a key opportunities and key risks section in every memo. And the key risks are often where those things show up. And so if we find some negative things, a lot of times the risk will basically be, hey, if these issues become exacerbated, that's going to pose a real potential threat to the company. And then is that the primary content marketing strategy then for the firm? Is that what really drives content marketing? Yeah. So I'm not a fan of content marketing, which is ironic because I'm a writer and I'm producing content and doing all these things. I think that when I think about the spectrum of content that exists on the internet, I think that a lot of people have built this engine around, you know, what I might affectionately refer to as hawking their own book, right? And I think that that creates a lot of like messy incentives where at the very least people just write you off because they know that you're just going to say nice things about the companies you invested in. And at the very worst, they're going to stop trusting you because you're sort of effectively, you know, inflating things that maybe shouldn't be inflated in the first place. And so we shy away a lot from traditional content marketing. The way I think about it instead is that we as a firm are trying to articulate our vibes in the internet. And so we're trying to put our message out there to say, hey, here are the things that we're thinking about. Here are the frameworks that we use. And so contrary research is one way to do that. My writing is a way to do that for me as an individual investor. Contrary research helps folks think about that. We also have a series. So we just launched this digital magazine that I'm absolutely in love with called Foundations and Frontiers. So it's written by a woman named Anna Sophia who works with us as a writer. And she basically, it's, it's different structurally. So where contrary research is going into deep the details on very specific companies, she's unpacking broad technology trends. So she has a piece on batteries. She has a piece on satellites. She has all these different things. And it's just an opportunity for us to say, listen, we are deeply thinking about these categories and trying to understand the underlying trends and dynamics that are at work here. If our way of thinking resonates with you, let's chat. Let's find something to jam on together. And if not, that's okay. But that's us trying to put our vibes out into the universe and see what you know what that shakes loose. And if I have the the dates right, you first got started in venture in 2016. So if that's the right date, or you know, we can adjust for whatever the the right date is. How have you seen marketing evolve for venture capital firms? Because I feel like five or six years ago there wasn't really that much out there. Today it seems like every VC is very aggressively marketing or talking about marketing. Is that accurate how I view things or, or, or am I wrong there? That's accurate. I mean, venture is a really interesting industry. So like I mentioned a little bit, but one of my first pieces that really popped off was this article that I wrote called The Unbundling of Venture. And I basically talked about these sort of three iterations of venture firms where originally you had these very monolithic brands where it was almost to the point where, you know, it wasn't even about the person, the individual investor within the firm, it was the firm itself. And then increasingly, you started to see these sort of fiefdoms emerge, right? Where you have really big firms, but they have individual components within them. And so you might have a, a specific crypto practice or a specific team that's focused on, you know, robotics or AIML or whatever it might be of these kind of pods. And so you started to see these, these sort of fiefdoms emerge. And what I referred to in the piece was this unbundling that's happened in venture, where effectively what you have are a lot of individual, I call them renegades in venture capital where they're basically changing the game and changing the messaging. And I think the reason that that has changed is that people as consumers of the internet have become a lot more discerning in how they pick an investor. So it's not just like, even though it's still very important to say, hey, this is a brand that I want to be associated with, brand Halo is still certainly a part of the equation. It's no longer the only component in the equation. People are also starting to try and think and understand. Again, I go back to this like, this is sort of a silly word, but these idea of like vibes, 
Like what are the vibes that this individual partner puts out and what is it like to work with them and what value do they bring and what's their product? And I think that what VCs are finding and the reason that so many of them are getting so loud about their marketing is they're realizing that they're fairly undifferentiated. And the framework that I use to articulate how venture firms are eventually going to realize they have to differentiate is that they have to have a very specific value proposition. And so every founder, when they ask me, you know, how do I think about which firms I should work with or who I should take money from? I always come back to this framework of asking, you know, what is the job to be done that you're hiring this firm's money for? And there are certain firms that are really good depending on what the job is that you need done or whatever it might be. But the danger is these firms that are trying to be everything for everyone, because eventually if you get so diluted and so broad, that you, it's very difficult to be good at any one particular thing. And so you sort of just become, you know, broadly mediocre and or maybe broadly good and not the best at anything per se. What's the jobs to be done for Contrary and, and for you, for Kyle? Yeah. So the focus for Contrary is very much, you know, again, it goes back to this ethos of sort of very people-centric. And so we focus a lot on talent vortexes. So companies that have a really high priority for hiring exceptional people, and in many cases who want to be entrepreneurs themselves, which is funny in many companies, they don't necessarily want that, right? Because they don't want their people to leave after two or three or four years to go start their own companies. And that's totally fine. And that's a strategy. And there are a lot of companies like that where people will stay for a really long time and, and never go anywhere else. But we have found that the most exceptional companies often are sort of made up of very entrepreneurial people. So if you're a company that wants to hire a lot of you know, younger, we do have folks that are in their, you know, 30s, early 30s to, you know, 40s. We don't have a ton of like C-suite exec, you know, gray-haired talent that's been around for <laughs> a long, long time. But if you want these young, hungry, scrappy people that want to take ownership of something, then Contrary has arguably one of the best sort of pulses on where those exceptional people are. And so if you want access to those folks, we're a great firm to hire. And that's what our capital is for. For me, as an individual investor, I sort of had this experience of, you know, again, I've now spent seven, eight years in investing, ran a company before that. And I think a lot of what I have built for myself is this sort of corpus of data of seeing a lot of different companies at a lot of different stages and a lot of different backgrounds. TCV, Code2, Index, they all invest in fairly different types of companies at different stages. And, and so I've been exposed to a lot of very different playbooks. And so often I find the value coming from, hey, if you're trying to solve any problem, I'm not always going to be the person who it's like, hey, I'm the one person in the world that's built this thing. And sometimes there are VCs like that and they're great. And sometimes there's not. But for me, it's my ability to point to here's the case study, here's the person, here's the company that you want to learn from because I've seen what you're going through in these different instances. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. If you had to put a number to it, how many pitches do you see per month? I would say at Contrary right now, and again, you know, markets are where they are and stuff, but I'm easily talking to 15 to 20 different founders every month, ebbs and flows, depending on, you know, conferences or whatever it might be. But I think more so what I'm spending my time thinking about is like, I certainly take pitches. I certainly meet with founders that I've never met before and try to get to understand them and things like that. 
But I'm starting to get to this point where I'm more interested in, in sort of finding these folks that I'm really excited about working with and then spending a good chunk of my time just going deep with them and spending a bunch of time with them, even before we invest in many instances. I think that has been a really rewarding part of the job over the last few months as sort of the markets have been in a different place where now it's not as crazy, it's not as manic, it's not every company and their mother is getting preempted every other day, but rather it's finding the folks that we really resonate with and then doing the things that we can do to knock down doors for them. And in the pitches that you see often, are there any red flags or common patterns or common mistakes that you see founders do that just drive you crazy and you, you wish they didn't do? I think the number one thing I noticed that sort of sets apart the very best pitches and conversations that I have from you know, the run of the mill, building a company is a very manic, obsessive activity. And there are a lot of instances where, you know, I think that today, especially like maybe this is different, you know, in the late 90s and early 2000s and stuff. But especially today, the playbooks are fairly established, the sort of frameworks for how to think about an early idea and to validate with customers and do all these things. Those things are fairly well trafficked concepts. And so when I meet somebody where, you know, it's like, hey, like, what have you done to validate the idea? And it's very obvious that they, in their mind, what they've done to validate the idea is have the idea. And now they want to raise money to go validate the idea further. And it's like, there's so much that you can do to talk to customers and understand their needs and play around with the alternatives or prototypes or what have you. And the founders who I, you know, I enjoy the conversation the most are the folks that like, you know, I say, hey, what have you done to validate this idea? And they're like, hey, I'm 10 steps ahead of you. Let me lay out the things that I've thought about and tried and played around with and all this stuff. And those are the sort of obsessives that I love working with. And in terms of go to market, are there any common mistakes that you see founders make? I think the biggest obstacle for an effective go to market engine is a real lack of focus. I think that people get in and they they don't spend very much time thinking about like, what does the acquisition engine look like for a specific type of user? How expensive is that? How, you know, how likely are they to churn away? And then over time, like, how valuable is that customer? And I think I have this conversation, you know, with almost every founder that I work with, which is this idea of you have to ultimately narrow your go-to-market down to priorities. Like, could you sell to a lot of different people in a lot of different end markets with a lot of different use cases? For sure. But you have to narrow down to figure out where does it make the most sense, both from like a unit economic perspective, as well as a long-term vision. Like, where do you want your company to be? And is it more important that you sort of slog your way through a slow sales cycle to go get these large customers because based on what your product is, that's the easiest way to then move down the stack and, and sort of soak up other use cases? Or does it make sense for you to just sprint and soak up all these small mid-market customers because they're valuable and they'll stick around and then you can start to expand. Like that, I have that conversation with almost every team I work with. What about category creation? Are you having those conversations often with founders? I think that founders are more often these days, especially really under, like prioritizing and understanding the difference between like, what is my actionable goals and things that I need to do versus what is the long-term vision that I have? And I think that for a lot of folks, I find myself using the term Trojan horse all the time, right? Or the the sort of maybe less, I don't know, PC way to say it or whatever is sort of the gateway drug, right? Like what is the thing that you do first to do super well? That is an area of a lot of focus. Very rarely is that creating a category per se. It is more so getting into a ledge. 
and then being able to expand and own more of a, a specific workflow or, or user base. The category conversations that I have with folks that are legitimately like they have to educate their users, I think that it has to come from a place of like intense user love. And so I end up talking to those people a lot about things like community and education and content and building this network of people that all have the same problem so they can educate each other. Like it actually does not, category creation often does not necessarily center around a technical problem. It very much centers around effectively a marketing problem and a storytelling problem. Are there any portfolio companies that you've invested in that have created a category? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think that a lot of the companies that I have worked with have been not necessarily creating a new category, but very much taking advantage of existing established things. One company that I would talk about that I think has done a really good job of this is Replit. So we're investors in Replit and they started as very much just a sort of, you know, an IDE, a, a developer environment to make it as easy as possible to start coding. They expanded education and then sort of last year launched a AI sort of co-pilot assistant with, called Ghost Whisperer. And the reason that I would point to Replit as effectively creating a category, which is sort of on the nose because it's very much traffic territory, right? This is a, a developer tool. People have been coding for a really long time. They have environments and ecosystems set up. I think that what Replit has stumbled onto and is doing a really good job of sort of taking advantage of is this idea that exponentially more software is going to be created over the next 10, 20 years than has been created over the last 10, 20 years. This democratization, especially with generative AI, this sort of like, quote unquote, democratization of, of coding capability is just going to explode. And so ultimately, it becomes less a function of how are you letting people write code and how are you owning as much of the environment and life cycle and habits of the people producing the code? And how do you give them all the tools that they need rather than forcing them to use the hodgepodge of different tools? Replit is very much focused on, we want everything you could possibly need in one place because this is going to be an increasingly simple process. And if it's going to be an increasingly simple process, then increasingly you're no longer going to put up with friction. And so Replit's platform is very much focused on reducing that friction. And that's not something historically, the sort of DevOps lifecycle has been, again, this hodgepodge of different tools and people have focused on providing a very specific tool. Replit is very much focused on creating a full environment. Hmm, super fascinating. Yeah, I was with a founder last night at dinner and you know, just talking about how things were going. And he told me you know, things are bad. And if any founder tells you otherwise, they're full of shit. It's just a scale of like how bad things are right now. I don't know if that's the case with you know, all of the founders that you work with, but that's what I've heard from, from a lot of founders. So given that state of the market today, what are your conversations like with early stage founders? And what are you advising them to do given the current market today? So I think that there's two things that suck right now. They're two big, th- I mean, a bunch of stuff sucks, <laughs> but there's two things that really suck right now for early stage founders. Number one, there is the broader macro environment and that's impacting spend and customers and all these different components. Then there's the fundraising environment, which is certainly a subset of the macroeconomic environment, but there's an element of VCs who are scared of their own shadow. And so it makes it more difficult to access capital and to do all these different things. And I, I think that you have to address both of those things in very different ways. The first one is very much a customer-centric exercise. And so being able to understand and identify what customers are going through and how you're solving problems for them is is more important than ever. And it sounds super obvious and overstated, but the reality is that 
people are still spending money on things. They are still trying new software. They are still you know, bringing on new tools. That hasn't disappeared. What has changed is the scorecard that people are using to make decisions. And so if you try and address a very new set of problems and pain points with a very old playbook, uh, very old feels, I guess this is a stupid way to say it because it's like a year old or whatever, but but the playbooks of 2021 don't work today. And so you need to really evaluate what problem you're solving for your customer and and how are you a you sort of absolutely must have thing. That's like thing number one. And so it's, I'm just continuing to push founders to be more customer obsessed. On the fundraising side, I actually think that as I wrote this piece about controlling your own destiny a few months ago, and in it, I talked a lot about how you really need to understand the math of your own model, where you, when you look at like, what milestones do I want to get to? How expensive is it going to be to get me there? How much cash do I have? How much life and runway does that give me? Like you really need to nail that equation because you don't want to be at the mercy of a bunch of VCs that are scared of their shadow. And so the more control and understanding you have your own model and to say, hey, here are the milestones I want to get to. Here's how expensive it's going to be. And then I need to build relationships with the right investors who are going to be ready for me at that point and, and stuff like that. Like that is a really, you know, not fun exercise for founders because they don't want to have to be thinking about it. But at the end of the day, when you start to boil down the real fundamental responsibilities of a founder, ultimately it comes back to the catch-all of storytelling, but it's basically you are storytelling to investors, you are storytelling to customers, and you are storytelling to candidates. And that's like the bulk of your job. And so it's understandable that like raising money makes you feel like you're taking time away from the business, but you do want to be very cautious and thoughtful about articulating your story in a meaningful way that that plays in this market and makes sense to people in this market. And if you are having a conversation with an early stage founder and, and you see that they have an interesting product or an interesting idea, but they suck at storytelling or, or they're not good at storytelling. What do you advise them to do? Like, how do you coach them to become a good storyteller? How do you build that skill or nurture that skill? Yeah, it's actually the biggest thing is, I guess, two things. So number one, I'm a big fan of the of a book called Made to Stick, which is kind of an older book, but spend a lot of time thinking about the sort of psychology of storytelling and thinking about how to make these ideas stick in people's heads. So I certainly recommend that quite a bit. But then the second thing is, I really, it's just practice. Like it's really just practice and then asking questions, like telling a story and then asking questions of how that resonated with people and getting their feedback and reactions. And and when you identify ways in which people are not resonating with your story, then fine tuning your story and, and honing in on what does and doesn't resonate with people. Like, I think that that's the thing is that a lot of people think that a story is something that either you have or you don't have. Like, man, I wish I had an AI angle that was sexy enough to catch everybody's attention. And it's like, for sure, there are things that, you know, that are going to tap the the hype word buzz. But at the end of the day, like a story is just a thing that you've practiced or not practiced and you can develop or not to frame it in a way that resonates with people. Yeah. Amazing. I love that. And super, super useful advice. Now, last couple of questions for you, Kyle, what opportunities are you looking for right now? Are there any specific categories or markets that you're especially excited about? Yeah. So a couple of categories that I'm really, really bullish on. So number one, you know, I mean, again, we wrote this deep dive on sort of finance tools. I think that there's a real opportunity in terms of the sort of thought of the old school way of of leveraging things like financial planning and, and so like that. I think AI certainly presents a really interesting opportunity there. So we'll be spending a fair bit of time thinking about different tools that are addressing different aspects of the finance stack. That, that's certainly one. 
And then another area that I'm really interested in. So again, in my career, I've spent a lot of time investing in, in data infrastructure, investing in companies like Databricks and Snowflake. And one of the things that I've seen the most at the sort of infrastructure level is that you know robust features and data collection and all these sort of meat and potatoes aspects of building technology, they're fundamental, they're critical, they're fundamental, it's super important. But one of the things that people often lose sight of is that the sort of capabilities of some of these tools race far ahead of the ability to effectively orchestrate and leverage the tools. So there's a ton of history of different data science tools that are really powerful and borderline unusable because they're very difficult to to orchestrate. And so now in this sort of world of LLMs and, and trying to think about how folks are leveraging different models, I become really interested in number one, tools that enable that orchestration of different models, selecting models. And so like I'm a, I'm a huge fan of companies like Hugging Face that have sort of enabled access to these different things. That's a big piece of it. The second piece of it is I'm constantly looking for companies that can build this really effective funnel in AI where, yeah, you want to see this, this huge traction of like initial users or open source traction or whatever. It kind of proves that the open funnel is open and attractive. But you also want to see some kind of conversion into an enterprise-grade tool that that company can then turn around and sell. And the best tools, you know, the best business models, this is a constant criticism of companies that are selling AI products right now, is that many of them have sort of very fleeting business models. So like, how are you actually going to make money charging for this thing? And I'm really focused on companies that have built tools that enable people to leverage this technology, whether that is, you know, one of our portfolio companies is a data visualization tool for fine-tuning models. And again, going back to this orchestration layer, like looking for tools that are actually monetizable in it because they unlock the superpowers that AI can provide to users. And final question here before we wrap, let's zoom out to the next, let's say 12 months. What are your predictions? What's going to happen in tech and the world of venture in the next 12 months? Oh man, that is a tall order when things are changing on a dime. There is this topic that I always want to explore more and more of, and I never have enough time to go deep on it, but I love the concept. I refer to it as historical futurism, and it's this idea of looking back at the past and how people have predicted the future. And so the example I always point to is things like in Back to the Future, where they go forward in time. What do they predict? And like one of their predictions, I mean, they get a bunch of things that we missed out on. We've already passed, you know, the 2015 was when it was or whatever. But it's like they really focused on the fax machine and they thought the fax machine was going to be just absolutely critical. And that's because in the 80s, the fax machines were new. And, and so people thought, you know, this is going to be a thing that sticks around. And they totally missed the mark on that. So whenever I try and forecast and extrapolate, I feel like I'm trying to anchor to things that are not like hypey and buzzy, but the sort of the Lindy principle, right, of like things that have been around, what's going to continue to be true. And so for me, maybe this is a little bit contrarian, which is uh, appropriate based on my firm's name. But I, I think that one of the things I spend a lot of time thinking about is that the physical world is going to rage on. Like as much as we get excited about what AI is capable of, or even now with you know Vision Pro and thinking about AR, VR, all of those things are super interesting. But the world still needs to move. Goods still need to be transported. Supply chains still need to be managed. It's like physical, natural goods and resources still need to be accessed. And I think that there is a huge opportunity to increase the efficiency, especially in a world where deglobalization is certainly happening and upon us. Supply chains are only going to get that much more complex. And so one of my partners, Will Robbins, he talks about this all the time and is, I think he's written about it a few times. But this idea that like 
we're still looking for things that make the physical world more efficient. And so when I think about, hey, what am I most excited about? And what do I think is going to happen over the next, you know, even 12 months? I think that managing the physical world is just going to continue to be increasingly important and increasingly complex, which, you know, creates an awesome opportunity for, you know, people to leverage technology. I love it. Kyle, we're up on time, so we're going to have to wrap here. Before we do, if any founders want to get in touch with you, where's the best place to go? Yeah, so much to my wife's chagrin, I spend way too much time on Twitter. So Twitter is definitely the best place to find me. So it's just at KWHarrison13 on Twitter, and my DMs are open, and I'm always excited to jam. Amazing. Kyle, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I know the founders listening are going to really enjoy it as well. So thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.